that vantage point. In 1983, Katie and I lived in the Philippines and taught at a seminary that was called the Far East Advanced School of Theology. The short name was FEAST. Till someone pointed out that for people who went to the school who came from Southeast Asia, it wasn't that far. The school changed its name to Asia Pacific Theological Seminary. We naturally view the world and everyone in it from our own vantage point. Even our language creates boundaries and lines of demarcation. We speak of us and them, just to be clear, that there are people who share our customs and values and people who don't, people who look like us and think like us, and people who are just flat-out different. Such divides, as we well know, have been the source of fear, of conflict, and hostility, whether in politics, in, in racial relationships, or in economic um, distinctions between the haves and the have-nots. When applied to religion and faith, such classification and differentiation can limit and skew our understanding of God. This is why the Apostle Paul addressed this in his letter to the Ephesians. The world of his day was divided into two groups, people of God and all other people. And Paul says, because of Christ, we need be divided and separated this way no longer. It's not a matter of bloodline or race that puts us in relationship with God, but faith in Christ. The result is Christ has made the former two groups into one. He's destroyed the barrier and the dividing wall. He calls it the barrier and dividing wall of hostility. And he's reconciled both to God through the cross. No longer can someone be considered a foreigner or an alien. By the way, that's you and me. Unless, I don't know how many of you are Jewish, but I think most of us are foreigners and aliens who have been brought near. He says, no such distinction because... All our fellow citizens and members of God's household who, who have come to faith in Christ. I heard someone interviewed the other day who invited us to change our thinking along the lines of us and them and find a new way of identifying ourselves as the other. Just think of yourself as the other. Um, of course, you're going to say other than what, right? Paul came to see people this way after his own revelation of Christ changed his understanding of God and the world. He of all people knew what this did. And now he warns against those who might restrict and confine God's love with us and them distinctions. He prays for Jew and Gentile alike as one community to know and comprehend the full measure of God's love in Christ. In fact, you can't possibly comprehend it unless you're together, unless your divergent viewpoints help you see how vast 
How high, how deep, how long, how wide is the love of God in Christ Jesus? You need each other to comprehend what that means. It takes the other to fully appreciate what I'm talking about. We don't come by such growth and maturity without being challenged to change, especially when we can't see our own need for it. If you recall Brenna's first sermon, she talked about shame and our willingness to accept our shame and to, and to not try to hide it or suppress it or ignore it, but to own it as part of a way of learning to to pray honestly to God. My own lesson in growth was shameful and painful. My roommate for the second year of college was a talented music major from White Plains, New York. Herb was kind and thoughtful. He loved God and he enjoyed the company of good friends. And I admired how he got up early every morning, well, most every morning, two hours earlier than anyone else to work on his piano skills before class even began. We respected each other and got along well until one day his relationship with a girl who was a mutual friend seemed to be more than a friendship. I had a strong emotional reaction to this news that I had never experienced before. It wasn't jealousy or envy, but something made me uncomfortable. My friend is African-American and the girl Caucasian. Suddenly when I looked at Herb, I saw color, where before I only saw character. Instead of being happy for a friend who was experiencing a budding romance, I was offended by a racial line that I drew in my own head. Once I realized that what was wrong was in me, I prayed for God's forgiveness and then for the courage to ask for herbs as well. My confession to him came as a shock and hurt my friend. But he did forgive me, and we both learned how deep and insidious racial prejudice lies in the human heart. Why do we make distinctions of color? Why do we make distinctions of of? Jew and Gentile, of male and female? Why do we make prejudice comments about the other? Words influence how we think and act. As a child in the South, Martin Luther King Jr. encountered words that made him feel bad. Words used to segregate and divide like whites only. From his mother, he heard very different words, like, you are as good as anyone. And when he went to church, he heard his father preach words that inspired him, that 
God loves everyone. So as he grew older, Martin became a man of words and led a movement of change for our country. When fellow citizens who had been suppressed by hate all their lives wanted to retaliate, King argued that hate and violence is not the answer. He said hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. When others said separate, Martin said together. When they said war, he said peace. In the mid-50s and early 60s, black Americans all over the South marched for equal rights, and Martin marched with them. White leaders told them to stop. Ministers and mayors, police chiefs and judges ordered them to stop. But they kept on marching. They were jailed, beaten, and even murdered. Some wanted to fight back, but Martin convinced them not to, reminding them of the power of love and that God was with them. In an effort to convince our nation's lawmakers to end segregation once and for all, they marched into Washington, D.C. on August 28, 1963. City officials were anxious and fearful. They thought for sure this was going to result in riot and mayhem, and so they stockpiled plasma in the hospitals. They banned the sale of liquor, and they, and they canceled all major events like baseball games. But what happened was quite the opposite. It was like a church social and a and a family gathering of celebration. And on the National Mall in front of the Lincoln Memorial, Martin Luther King gave a speech advocating equal rights. The speechwriter recalls how Martin Luther King, whenever he would get his text, would, would read it and then use his own words, make it his own language. But on this day, he read it word for word. Then partway through the speech, King looked away from his notes, and it said that singer Mahalia Jackson called out to him as if he were preaching in church. Tell him about the dream, Martin. And he went off script with words that envisioned the change he pictured. Words that sounded more like a sermon of deep-seated conviction and anointing. Unforgettable words with a compelling cadence. I have a dream. That one day this nation will rise up and live out the meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all Men are created equal. I have a dream that my four children one day will live in a nation where they'll, where they'll not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream that one day in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will join hands with little white boys and little white girls as brothers and sisters. And you know the speech. It goes on to talk about letting freedom ring 
and he sections off all portions of the nation so that we're all included. So that justice results in freedom and celebrates that freedom. Martin Luther King, as you know, was a pastor and he prayed. And I think in this prayer, it reveals the source and inspiration of his dream. What he hoped for a nation, he prayed for in a church. After all, wouldn't the people of God be most concerned that the will of God is accomplished in the world? That what Paul speaks of about Jew and Gentile is not limited to those categories, but to every category that separates us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. See if you can't hear some of the echoes of Martin's speech in this prayer. Lord, we thank you for your church founded upon your word that challenges us to do more than sing and pray, but to go out and work as though the very answer to our prayers depended on us and not upon you. Help us to realize that humanity was created to shine like the stars and to live on through all eternity. Keep us, we pray, in perfect peace. Help us to walk together, pray together, sing together, and live together until that day when all God's children, black, white, red, yellow, brown, will rejoice in one common band in humanity in the reign of our Lord and of our God. We pray. I have two observations of how I think Paul's writings and Martin Luther King's writings speak of how we might be part of the answer to the prayers we pray. The first is that the work of God's kingdom and of justice requires us to act beyond the walls of this church building. That our worship doesn't end here. It becomes part of the way we live. And if we pray to a God who is just, we pray to a God who's all-powerful, but manifests that power and self-sacrificing love, then we ought to live that way. Bold and and courageous. To go out and work as though the very answer depends on us. Isn't that what Jesus wanted us to do when he taught us his prayer? We're not just to come in the sanctuary and make God's name hallowed. We're to live it out so that it's hallowed wherever we are. That God's name is honored and considered holy, sacred. Now there will be people who are going to malign that name. I can't tell you how many times I've been with people who don't know I'm a minister and They've had very colorful language and have used God's name in the most um, offensive way possible. Let's just put it that way. And then they find out a minister and they go, oops. And I want to say, it's not me you offended. But it's not about correcting people's speech. It's about pointing to the reality of God's presence in this world so that people's eyes might be opened and their hearts opened 
to what God is doing. Making God's name mean something. God's presence as real and, and here. And when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and we say on earth as it is in heaven, guess who that includes? We're the ones that are, that are going to make that will become a reality. I believe Martin Luther King had it right. Unless we align our, our wills with God's, unless in prayer we understand what God wants accomplished in the world, then we're just fighting people in the world, trying to get our way. It's a contest all the time. But if we're doing the work of God, then, then by all means, we want to do it with integrity and honesty and clarity. This is reminiscent of St. Augustine's prayer. He said it this way, pray as though everything depended on God and work as though everything depended on you. The two are, are integral. You can't do one without the other because otherwise you're going to work to your own ends and get off track or you're going to pray and do nothing about it. When we pray to God, God says, okay, good point. I think I've got an assignment for you. That's the listening part of prayer, to say, Lord, how do you want me to be part of this answer? What is it you're asking of me? And then the second observation brings us to this table. For love to be effective, we need to make use of power. And I know that's not something you hear in sermons. You might even think, what is power a biblical word? Hello? Paul prays that God would strengthen us with power through his spirit in our inner beings. I think this table is a manifestation of God's power not to override our wills or to, or to circumscribe our hearts, but rather to, to win them through self-sacrificing love. The demonstration of power used for a purpose that gives life, not that destroys and takes life or diminishes it. One of the greatest problems of history, Martin Luther King said, is that the concepts of love and power have usually been contrasted as opposites, polar opposites, so that love is identified with the resignation of power and power with a denial of love. What is needed is the realization that power without love is reckless and abusive. And that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Just look at all the promotions of Valentine's Day and you'll understand what he's talking about. That's not love, that's commercialization of romance. Love is hard work. Love sticks in your throat. Love is what you've been through with someone and hung in there because it matters. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. 
And justice at its best is correcting everything that stands against love. Wow. Martin Luther King prayed for the church to understand this. It's in our DNA. It's, our, it's the essence of our identity with Christ. But then he prayed that the church would live it. Not sequester itself into, into being like-minded people who don't venture beyond what we might learn and grow through someone else, the other. And yet, how are we to comprehend the magnitude of Christ's love? To fully appreciate what it means that he gave himself for us and asks us to be life-giving people for him. What have we to fear? What might we get wrong? This meal helps us remember the height, the depth, the length, and the width of Christ's love is without measure, but never without appreciation, admiration, and conviction. May these gifts of God be for us, God's people, and may we never limit who's invited to this table. Amen.